0: Hello, my fellow sapiens. Welcome back to Talks News, where we take a break from news. It's Theory Thursday, Chapter 3 of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And that intro music is just slapping for me. I'm actually really enjoying it. Today, I'm really enjoying it. That was a beat that I made on my Akai drum pad. And a Chaos Effect pad. A little in the mix. Hopefully I can get a desk someday and bust out some more beats. Some more Fat Flaves. That one's really old. And one of like the very first uh, beats I had made on the Akai. But it does well enough for the intro of this podcast. So. Do we have our books, children? Let's see. See if we've got our uh, shtick together. All right. This is also being produced through Anchor, the free podcast app that any of y'all can use to your own power of will. Shouts out to that. Also uploaded on YouTube, a platform that pretty much lets anybody create content as well. So shouts out to Autonomy. Not really into private corporations handing it out to limited services, but, you know, we didn't create the world, we just have to operate in it. And that's where this wonderful piece of non-fiction literature comes in to kind of show us where we came from. So, we are getting into chapter 3 today, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve. I have a few notes going throughout the chapter up until about the last three subsections within the chapter, which I'm going to just read through, um, mainly because those last three sum up all of the knowledge pretty well, and I'm not here to make a brief summary so much as making sure that all the information is out there and can be received through sapien minds. You can play this for your dog or cat if you want, but I'm not sure they'll retain the information So, in the previous chapter, we covered how through our supple language, we cultivated a big advantage over other hominids and other animals. Our ability to form complex situations, or I guess sentences is the better word for it, complex sentences and create imaginary myths and stories and navigation and gossip has really what gave us that leg above the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, we also learned how our ability to form complex yeah, complex sentences in order to gossip and create stories allowed us to cooperate better and forge larger bands of sapiens. So we grew in numbers, and as we know, there is strength in numbers. The creation of myths and culture has allowed human behavior to change rapidly without genetic mutations or environmental, environmental pressures and we learned how the utilization of legends, corporations, myths, nations, and gods has allowed us to organize ourselves in a variety of ways. That transcends most of the animal kingdom. So today we look to understand our nature, history, and psychology by traveling back prior to the past 200 years of the Industrial Revolution and prior to our history 10,000 years ago of the Agricultural Revolution. Those are mere blinks of an eye to the tens of thousands of years we spent as hunter-gatherers. This is a point that Yuval really drives home as we get into Chapter 3, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve. So evolutionary psychology of today argues many of our social and psychological characteristics were shaped during this long pre-agricultural era. Our eating habits... Our conflicts and our sexuality are all the result of the way our hunter-gatherer minds interact with our current post-industrial environment with its megacities, aeroplanes, telephones, and computers, says Yuval. Today, scholars argue our brains are still adapted for the hunter-gatherer life. Yuval says, although our current environment gives us more material resources and longer lives than any previous generation, it often makes us feel alienated depressed, and pressured. So to understand why evolutionary psychologists argue we need to delve into the hunter-gatherer world that shaped us, the world that we subconsciously still inhabit. Yes, and I lost my page in my notes. Oh boy. There it is. Listen to those pages turn. So... Yuval brings up an interesting example for how the hunter gatherer psychology still affects us today in the post industrial psychology. And his example is, why do people gorge on high calorie food that is doing little to no good for their bodies? Today's affluent societies have high obesity and it's a puzzle. We binge on junk food until we look at our ancestors. A typical forager 30,000 years ago had access to one type of sweet food, and that was ripe fruit. For a forager, it was more sensible to eat as many on the spot before the local baboo band, baboon, ooh, baboon band, picked the tree bare. So the instinct derives from the idea that we'll never see it again. But in this post-industrial area, uh, or not area, but era, we have near infinite amount of gummy bears. And yet it doesn't seem that this uh, drive to gorge on them as soon as we find them because they, they might be the last gummy bears on earth hasn't quite left us yet. So... This instinct to gorge on high-calorie food was hardwired into our genes. Today, we may be living in high-rise apartments with overstuffed refrigerators, but our DNA still thinks we are in the savannah. That's what makes some of us spoon down an entire tub of Ben & Jerry's when we find one in the freezer and wash it down with a jumbo Coke. This gorging gene theory is widely accepted. Other theories are far more contentious. For example... Some evolutionary psychologists argue that ancient foraging bands were not composed of nuclear families centered on monogamous couples. Rather, foragers lived in communes devoid of private property, monogamous relationships, and even fatherhood. In such a band, a woman could have sex and form intimate bonds with several men and women simultaneously. And all of the band's adults cooperated in parenting its children. Since no man knew definitively which of the children were his, Men showed equal concern for all youngsters. Such a social construct is not an Aquarian utopia. It's well documented among animals, notably our closest relatives, the chimpanzees and bonobos. There are even a number of present-day human cultures in which collective fatherhood is practiced. As for example, among the Bari Indians, according to the beliefs of such societies, a child is not born from the sperm of a single man, but from the accumulation of sperm in a woman's womb. A good mother will make a point of having sex with several different men, especially when she is pregnant, so that her child will enjoy the qualities and parental care not merely of the best hunter, but also of the best storyteller, the strongest warrior, and the most considerate lover. If this sounds silly, bear in mind that before the development of modern (laughs) Embryo- <laughs> embryological studies people had no solid evidence that babies are always sired by a single father rather than by many so this brings in the ancient commune theory this ancient commune theory argues that the frequent infidelity that characterizes modern marriages The high rates of divorce and the corticopia of psychological complexes children and adults suffer are a result of forcing humans to live in nuclear families and monogamous relationships. Many scholars dispute this theory, let that be noted, saying both monogamy and nuclear families are natural human behavior. The book, Sapiens, continues on this Point further saying though ancient hunter-gatherer societies tended to be more communal and egalitarian than modern societies these researchers argue they were nevertheless compromised or comprised of separate cells each containing a jealous couple and the children they held in common in order to solve resolve this controversy and understand our sexuality society and politics We need to learn something about the living conditions of our ancestors to examine how sapiens lived between the cognitive revolution of 70,000 years ago and the start of the agricultural revolution about 12,000 years ago. And um, another book that I would recommend at this point too that kind of dives into the, the sex aspect of this if you're looking little kinkier um, is a book I think called Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan I actually bought it I think about a year after this book and I had heard of him because he was like one of the first like one of the close to the last interviews that Harmon had on Harmontown and he's like a really funny guy with the mic and so like his banter between Harmon and his uh, other cohorts Jeff Davis and all of that I, I got into that book, and it's a pretty interesting read. It just mostly looks a, l- around the, the social construct that is uh, human sexuality at this point. So uh, Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan is a, another book that I just so happened to read around this subject. Um, unfortunately, this... Uh, the Sapiens book here continues. Unfortunately, there are few certainties regarding the lives of our forager ancestors. The debate between the ancient commune and eternal monogamy schools is based on flimsy evidence. Our only evidence seems, you know, of, you know, how Sapiens interacted or lived the a day in the life of ancient Sapiens foragers. Uh, Our only evidence really consists of fossilized bones and stone tools. So there isn't, like, really much, you know, say, writing to go off of here, or even, uh, you know, stories from mouth to mouth, you know, mouth to ear kind of stuff. So um, really just focusing on these artifacts that have unknown stories attached to them. So, um... Any reconstruction, uh, Yuval continues, any reconstruction of the lives of ancient hunter-gatherers from the surviving artifacts is extremely problematic. One of the most glaring, glaring differences between the ancient foragers and their agricultural and industrial descendants is that foragers have had very few artifacts to begin with, and these played a comparatively modest role in their lives. Now this is where our lives come into contrast. Uh, Over the course of his or her life, a typical member of a modern affluent society will own several million artifacts, from cars and houses to disposable nappies and milk cartons. There's hardly an activity, a belief, or even an emotion that is not mediated by objects of our own devising. Our eating habits are mediated by a mind-boggling collection of such items from spoons and glasses to genetic engineering labs and gigantic ocean-going ships. In play, We use a plethora of toys, from plastic cards to 100,000-seater stadiums. Our romantic and sexual relations are accorded by rings, beds, nice clothes, sexy underwear, condoms, fashionable restaurants, cheap motels, airport lounges, wedding halls, and catering companies. Religions bring the sacred into our lives with Gothic churches, Muslim mosques, Hindu ashrams, Torah scrolls, Tibetan prayer wheels, priestly cassocks, Candles, incense, Christmas trees, matzah balls, tombstones, and icons. We hardly notice how ubiquitous our stuff is until we have to move it to a new house. In more contrast, foragers moved house every month, possibly every week, sometimes every day, carrying what they could on their backs. Only the most essential items would come with them, To remedy this lack of artifacts, though, we can look to modern forager societies. However, these two are influenced by our agricultural and industrial societies, meaning we can't assume that what is true of them now is also true 10,000 or tens of thousands of years ago. What's also making this difficult is how different forager societies are from one another, but we shall get to that shortly. Yuval continues, It's reasonable to presume, then, that the greater part of their mental, religious, and emotional lives was conducted without the help of artifacts. An archaeologist working 100,000 years from now could piece together a reasonable picture of Muslim belief and practice from the myriad objects he unearthed in a ruined mosque. But we, large, we are Largely at a loss in trying to comprehend the beliefs and rituals of ancient hunter-gatherers It's much it's much the same dilemma that a future historian would face if he had to depict the, the social order of 21st century teenagers solely on the basis of their surviving snail mail since no records will remain of their phone conversations emails blogs and text messages So, as I had said earlier, we can look at the modern foreign foragers to see maybe, you know, there's some similarities between now and 10,000 years ago, but we have to know that there is a variation and that's us, the, the, the brothers and sisters who stepped into society and I guess what we call innovation. Um, so we have to at least take that in mind, but we can maybe look at some indications of how you know, um, isolated tribes would operate. So, let's see here. Yuval continues. Secondly, modern forager societies have survived mainly in areas with difficult climate conditions and inhospitable terrain ill-suited for agricultural societies that have adapted to the extreme conditions of such places such as the kalahari desert in southern africa may well provide a very misleading model for understanding ancient societies and fertile areas such as the yanks river valley and i'm sorry if i get these wrong i'm I'm an american Um, in particular population density in an area like the Kalahari Desert, is far lower than it is around the ancient Yanks. And this this has far-reaching implications for key questions about the size and structure of human bands and the relations between them. So, before the British conquest of Australia between 300,000 and 700,000 foragers lived in 200 to 600 tribes, which were further divided into several bands. Each tribe having their own religion, language, norms, and customs. So even in trying to understand one modern for, or not even modern forager, but trying to understand one foraging group is incredibly difficult because of the variety of spectrum that tribes live under. That there's uh, just diversity in their own beliefs and um, common values and... How they live their day-to-day lives so even giving one example is not necessarily even close to the whole picture so living around what is now adelaide in southern australia were several hmm, patrilineal clans that reckoned descent from the father's side these clans bonded together into tribes on a strictly territorial basis In contrast, some tribes in northern Australia gave more importance to a person's maternal ancestry and a person's tribal identity depended on his or her totem rather than his territory. It stands to reason that the ethnic and cultural variety among ancient hunter-gatherers was equally, equally impressive and that the five million to eight million foragers who populated the world on the eve of the agricultural revolution were divided into thousands of separate tribes with thousands of different languages and cultures. This Yuval says is thanks to the appearance of fictions That people with the same genetic makeup under similar ecological conditions created very different imagined realities which manifested different norms and values. There's a little note I had that came from the book that's pretty important, but the book itself continues, for example, There's every reason to believe that a forager band that lived 30,000 years ago on the spot where Oxford University now stands would have spoken a different language from one living where Cambridge is now situated. One band might have been belligerent and the other peaceful. Perhaps the Cambridge band was communal while the one at Oxford was based on nuclear families. The... Sorry, this is a difficult word. The Cantabrigians... The Cantabrigians... It's a nice tribe name. So the Cantabrigians might have spent long hours carving wood statues of their guardian spirits, whereas the Oxonians may have worshipped through dance. The former perhaps believed in reincarnation, while the latter thought this was nonsense. In one society, homosexual uh, relationships might have been accepted, while in the other they were taboo. In other words, while anthropological observations of modern foragers can help us understand some of the possibilities available to ancient foragers, the ancient horizon of possibilities was much broader, and most of it is hidden from our view. The heated debates about Homo sapiens' natural way of life miss the main point. Ever since the cognitive revolution, there hasn't been a single natural way of life for sapiens. There are only cultural choices from among a bewildering palette of possibilities. And that's when we break into the next subsection, the original affluent society. So a couple notes come in here of, so what can we assume? We can assume that members of a band knew each other intimately. Intimately. We can assume loneliness and privacy were rare. And we can assume neighboring bands probably competed for resources, sometimes having friendly agreements. And these friendly agreements may have extended to exchanging members of each other's bands uh, or hunting together, trading rare luxuries, cementing political alliances. To whatever degree that would mean for them back then, and celebrating religious festivals. And sometimes relations with neighboring bands were tight enough that they could form a tribe, sharing a common language, common myths, and common norms and values. However, bands still spent most of their time in isolation and independence, because as we can remember, above a certain threshold, um, it's hard for sapiens to continue cooperating, especially as our myths and norms and values become less common. Yuval continues on page seven, uh, 47, sociopolitical relations too tended to be sporadic. The tribe did not serve as a permanent political framework, and even if it had, seasonal meeting places... Uh, Even if it had seasonal meeting places, there were no permanent towns or institutions. The average person lived many months without seeing or hearing a human from outside of her own band, and she encountered throughout her life no more than a few hundred humans. The sapiens' population was thinly spread over vast territories. Before the agricultural revolution, the human population of the entire planet was smaller than that of today's Cairo. So, most sapiens in search of food, and these are the ancient, the, the most sapiens, the, the ancient bands, if you will. Most sapien bands in search of food lived on the road influenced by changing seasons, the migrations of animals, and the growth cycles of plants. Much like we normally only think of geese, most of us uh, average schmojos. delicious coffee so sapiens usually traveled back and forth across the same home territory an area of between several dozen and many hundreds of square miles but the more familiar the better more resourceful the better occasionally bands wandered outside their turf and explored new lands whether due to natural calamities, violent conflicts, demographic pressures, or the initiative of a charismatic leader. These wanderings were the engine of human worldwide expansion. If a forager band split once every 40 years, and its splinter group migrated to a new territory 60 miles to the east, the distance from East Africa to China would have been covered in about 10,000 years. In some exceptional cases, when food sources were particularly—particularly—does uh, uh, anybody else have a problem with particularly? Were particularly rich bands. Oh man! In some exceptional cases, when food sources were particularly rich, <laughs> bands settled down in seasonal and even permanent camps. Techniques for drying, smoking, and freezing food also made it possible to stay put for longer periods. Most importantly, alongside seas and rivers rich in seafood and waterfowl, humans set up permanent fishing villages, the first permanent settlements in history long predating the agricultural revolution. Fishing villages might have appeared on the coasts of Indonesian islands as early as 45,000 years ago, these may have been the base from which Homo sapiens launched its first transoceanic enterprise, the invasion of Australia. So, sapiens did not forage only for food and materials, they foraged for knowledge as well. To survive, they needed a detailed mental map of their territory. To maximize the efficiency of their daily search for food, they required information about the growth patterns of each plant and the habits of each animal. They needed to know which foods were nourishing, which made you sick, and how to use others as cures. They needed to know the progress of the seasons and what warning signs preceded a thunderstorm or a dry spell. They studied every stream, every walnut, every bear cave, and every flint stone deposit in their vicinity. Each individual had to understand how to make a stone knife, how to mend a torn cloak, how to lay a rabbit trap, and how to face avalanches, snake bites, or hungry lions. Mastery of, the, e- of each of these mini-skills required years of apprenticeship and practice. The average ancient forager could turn a flint stone into a spear point within minutes. When we try to imitate this feat, we usually fail miserably. Most of us lack expert knowledge of the flaking properties of flint and basalt and the fine motor skills needed to work them precisely. In other words, the average forager had wider, deeper, and more varied knowledge of her immediate surroundings than most of her modern descendants. He just took a jab at us so today most people in industrial societies don't need to know much about the natural world in order to survive actually how's the stock market doing you know most only know their tiny field of expertise such as computer engineer insurance agent history teacher factory worker there is some evidence that the average size of the sapiens brain has actually actually decrease since the age of foraging. That hurts. It, it it hurts a lot. Um so the the ancient uh foraging sapiens acquired adept skills such as listening to the slightest movement in the grass to learn if a snake might be lurking. Carefully observed the foliage of trees to discover fruits, beehives, and birds' nests. Moved with minimum effort and noise and knew how to sit, walk, and run in the most agile and efficient manner. Hunter-gatherer life differed from region to region and from season to season, but on the whole, Foragers seem to have enjoyed a more comfortable and rewarding lifestyle than most of the peasants, shepherds, laborers, and office clerks that followed in their footsteps. And we shall get into that as to why. Why? The human collective that we know today knows far more today than did the ancient bands. But at the individual level, ancient foragers were the most knowledgeable and skillful people in history. Survival in that era required superb mental abilities from everyone. When agriculture and industry came along, people could increasingly rely on the skills of others for survival, and new niches for imbeciles were opened up. Foragers mastered not only the surrounding world of animals, plants, and objects, but also the internal world of their own bodies and senses. Varied and constant use of their bodies made them as fit as marathon runners. They had physical dexterity that people today are unable to achieve even after years of practicing yoga or tai chi. The hits just keep on rolling. While people in today's affluent societies work an average of 40 to 45 hours a week and people in the developing world work 60 and even 80 hours a week, hunter-gatherers living today in the most inhospitable of habitats, such as the Kalahari Desert, work on average for just 35 to 45 hours a week. They hunt only one day out of three, and gathering takes up just three to six hours daily. In normal times, this is enough to feed the band. It may well be that ancient hunter-gatherers living in zones more fertile than the Kalahari spent even less time obtaining food and raw materials. On top of that, foragers enjoyed a lighter load of household chores. They had no dishes to wash, no carpets to vacuum, no floors to polish, no nappies to change, and no bills to pay. The forager economy provided most people with more interesting lives than agricultural or agriculture or industry do today a chinese factory hand leaves home around 7 in the morning makes her way through polluted streets to a sweatshop and there operates the same machine in the same way day in day out for 10 long and mind-numbing hours returning home around 7 in the evening in order to wash dishes and do the laundry 30,000 years ago, a Chinese forager might leave camp with her companions at, say, 8 in the morning. They'd roam the nearby forests and meadows, gathering mushrooms, digging up edible roots, catching frogs, and occasionally running away from tigers. By early afternoon, they were back at the camp to make lunch. That left them plenty of time to gossip, tell stories, play with the children, and just hang out. Of course, the tigers sometimes caught them, or a snake bit them. But on the other hand, they didn't have to deal with automobile accidents. And industrial pollution. Taking some real shots there. Really hitting us hard. And this begins the segment where I read the book straight to drive the final points home. So, in order to do that, we sit and we sip coffee. I hope you start bringing these every uh, Theory Thursday. You're gonna need coffee. It's early in the morning for me, so I have to work your black magic. You ready? Yuval continues. In most places, and at most times, foraging provided ideal nutrition that is hardly surprising. This had been the human diet for hundreds of thousands of years, and the human body is well adapted to it. Evidence from fossilized skeletons indicates that ancient foragers were less likely to suffer from starvation or malnutrition and were generally taller and healthier than their present descendants. Average life expectancy was apparently just 30 to 40 years, but this was due largely to the high incidence of child mortality. Mortality. Morality. Jeez. I needed that coffee, didn't I? Children who made it through the perilous first years had a good chance of reaching the age of 60, and some even made it to their 80s. Among modern foragers, 45-year-old women can expect to live another 20 years, and about 5-8% to of the population is over 60. The foragers' secret of success which protected them from starvation and malnutrition was their varied diet. Farmers tend to eat a very limited and unbalanced diet, especially in pre-modern times. Most of the calories feeding an agricultural population came from a single crop, such as wheat potatoes or rice that lacks some of the vitamins minerals and other nutritional materials humans need the typical peasant in traditional china ate rice for breakfast rice for lunch and rice for dinner if she were lucky she could expect to eat the same on the following day by contrast ancient foragers regularly ate dozens of different foods the peasant's ancient ancestor the forager may have been eaten may have eaten berries and mushrooms for breakfast fruits snails and turtle for lunch, and rabbit steak with wild onions for dinner. Tomorrow's menu might have been completely different. This variety ensured that the ancient foragers received all the necessary nutrients. Furthermore, by not not being dependent on any single kind of food, they were less liable to suffer when one particular food source failed. Agricultural societies are ravaged by famine when drought, fire, or earthquake devastates the annual rice or potato crop. Forager societies were hardly immune to natural disasters and suffered from periods of want and hunger, but they were usually able to deal with such calamities more easily. If they lost some of their staple foodstuffs, they could gather or hunt other species or move to a less affected area. Ancient foragers also suffered less from infectious diseases. Most of the infectious diseases that have plagued agricultural and industrial societies such as smallpox, measles, and tuberculosis originated in domesticated animals and were transferred to humans only after the agricultural revolution. Ancient foragers who had domesticated only dogs were free of these scourges. Moreover, most people in agricultural and industrial societies lived in dense, unhygienic, permanent settlements. Ideal hotbeds for disease. Forgers roamed the land in small bands that could not sustain epidemics so i mean this this is like one of my favorite uh parts in the book because it really brings into just like a little bit of small understanding of what we have to contrast the lives that we really only know so it's one of my favorite parts in the book to kind of like put them side by side not necessarily uh just looking at one at the other which you know spending this much time in modern society you can feel a complete disconnect from ancient societies because i mean when we talk in politics most of our history only goes back to like 100 years ago and then sometimes in other conversations it'll go back to about 250 here in america so i mean um i find this very interesting enlightening and empowering oh man hope just you sips your coughs because we are about to go again the wholesome and variety uh <clears throat> the wholesome and ver- varied diet the relatively short working week and the rarity of infectious diseases have led many experts to define pre-agricultural forager societies as the original affluent societies it would be a mistake however to idealize the lives of these ancients Though they lived better lives than most people in agricultural and industrial societies, their world could still be harsh and unforgiving. Periods of want and hardship were not uncommon. Child mortality was high, and an accident, which would be minor today, could easily become a death sentence. Most people probably enjoyed the close intimacy of the roaming band, but those unfortunates who incurred the hostility of mockery, or mockery of their fellow band members probably suffered terribly. Modern foragers occasionally abandon and even kill old or disabled people who cannot keep up with the band. Unwanted babies and children may be slain, and there are even cases of religiously inspired human sacrifice. The Ache people, hunter-gatherers who lived in the jungles of Paraguay until the 1960s, offer a glimpse into the darker side of foraging. When a valued member died, The Ache customarily killed a little girl and buried the two together. Anthropologists who interviewed the Ache recorded a case in which a band abandoned a middle-aged man who fell sick and was was unable to keep up with the others. He was left under a tree. Vultures perched above him and expecting a hearty meal. But the man recuperated and walking briskly, he managed to rejoin the band his body was covered with the bird's feces so he was henceforth nicknamed vulture droppings when an old ache woman became a burden to the rest of the band one of the younger men would sneak behind her and kill her with an axe blow to the head an ache man told the inquisitive anthropologist stories of his prime years in the jungle i customarily killed old women i used to kill my aunts i used to kill my aunts the women were afraid of me now here with the whites i have become weak That was the Ache man they had interviewed. Babies born without hair who were considered underdeveloped were killed immediately. One woman recalled that her first baby girl was killed because the men in the band did not want another girl. On another occasion, a man killed a small boy because he was in a bad mood and the child was crying. Another child was buried alive because, quote, it was funny looking and the other children laughed at it, unquote. We should be careful, though, not to judge the Ache too quickly. Anthropologists who lived with them for years report that violence between adults was very rare. Both women and men were free to change partners at will. They smiled and laughed constantly, had no leadership hierarchy, and generally shunned uh, domineering people. They were extremely generous with their few possessions and were not obsessed with success or wealth. The things they valued most in life were good social interactions and high-quality friendships. They viewed the killing of children, sick people, and the elderly as many people today view abortion and euthanasia. It should also be noted that the Ache were hunted and killed without mercy by Paraguayan farmers. They need to evade their enemies probably caused the Ache to adopt an exceptionally harsh attitude towards anyone who might become a liability to the band. The truth is that Ache society like every human society was very complex we should be we should beware of demonizing or idolizing the band on the basis of a superficial acquaintance the ache were neither angels nor fiends they were humans so too were the ancient hunter gatherers and we enter into the next subsection Talking Ghosts. What what can we say about the spiritual and mental life of the ancient hunter-gatherers? The basics of the forager economy can be reconstructed with some confidence based on quantifiable and objective factors. For example, we can calculate how many calories per day a person needed in order to survive how many calories were obtained from a pound of walnuts, and how many walnuts could be gathered from a square mile of forest. With this data, we can make an educated guess about the relative importance of walnuts in their diet. But did they consider walnuts a delicacy, or a humdrum staple? Did they believe that walnut trees were inhabited by spirits? Did they find walnut leaves pretty? If a forager boy wanted to take a forager girl to a romantic spot, did the shade of a walnut tree suffice? The world of thought, belief, and feeling is by definition far more difficult to decipher. Most scholars agree that animistic beliefs were common among ancient foragers. Animism is the belief that almost every place, every animal, every plant, and every natural phenomenon has awareness and feelings and can communicate directly with humans. Thus... Animists may believe that the big rock at the top of the hill has desires and needs. The rock might be angry about something that people did and rejoice over some other action. The rock might admonish people or ask for favors. Humans, for their part, can address the rock, to mollify or threaten it. Not only the rock, but also the oak tree at the bottom of the hill is an animated being, and so is the stream flowing below the hill, the spring in the forest clearing the bushes growing around it, the path to the clearing, and the field mice, wolves, and crows that drink there. In the animus world, objects and living things are not the only animated beings. There are also immaterial entities, the spirits of the dead, and friendly and malevolent beings, the kind that we today call demons, fairies, and angels. Animists believe that there is no barrier between humans and other beings. They can all communicate directly through speech, song, dance, and ceremony. A hunter may address a herd of deer and ask that one of them sacrifice itself. If the hunt succeeds, the hunter may ask the dead animal to forgive him. When someone falls sick, a shaman can contact the spirit that caused the sickness and try to pacify it or scare it away. If need be, the shaman may ask for help from other spirits. What characterizes all these acts of communication is that the entities being addressed are local beings. They are not universal gods, but rather a particular deer, a particular tree, a particular stream, a particular ghost. Just as there is no barrier between humans and other beings, neither is there a strict hierarchy. Non-human entities do not exist merely to provide for the needs of man, nor are they all powerful gods who run the world as they wish. The world does not revolve around humans or around any other particular group of beings. Animism is not a specific religion. It is a generic name for thousands of very different religions, cults, and beliefs. What makes all of them animist is this common approach to the world and to man's place in it. Saying that ancient foragers were probably animists is like saying that pre-modern agriculturists were mostly theists. Theism is the view that the universal world or the universal order, is based on a hierarchical relationship between humans and a small group of ethereal ethereal entities called gods. It is certainly true to say that pre modern agriculturalists tended to be theists, but it does not teach us much about the particulars. The genetic rubric theists covers Jewish rabbis from eighteenth century Poland, witch burning Puritans from seventeenth century Massachusetts, Aztec priests from 15th century Mexico, Sufi mystics from 12th century Iran, 10th century Viking warriors, 2nd century Roman legionnaires, and 1st century Chinese bureaucrats. Each of these viewed the other's beliefs and practices as weird and heretical. The differences between the beliefs and practices of groups of animistic foragers were probably just as big. Their religious experience may have been turbulent and filled with controversies, reforms, and revolutions. But these cautious generalizations are about as far as we can go. Any attempt to describe the specifics of archaic spirituality is highly uh, speculative. As there is next to no evidence to go by, and... The little evidence we have a handful of artifacts and cave paintings can be interpreted in myriad ways the theories of scholars who claim to know what the foragers felt shed more much more light on the prejudices of their authors than on stone age religions instead of erecting mountains of theory over a molehill of tomb relics cave paintings and bone statuettes it is better to be frank and admit that we have only the haziest notions about the religions of ancient foragers. We assume that they were animus, but that's not very informative. We don't know which spirits they prayed to, which festivals they celebrated, or which taboos they observed. Most importantly, we don't know what stories they told. It's one of the biggest holes in our understanding of human history. The socio-political world of the foragers is another area about which we knew we know next to nothing. As explained above, scholars cannot even agree on the basics, such as the existence of private property, nuclear families, and monogamous relationships. It's likely that different bands had different structures. Some may have been as hierarchical, tense, and violent as the nastiest chimpanzee group, while others were as laid-back, peaceful, and lascivious, lascivious as a bunch of bonobos. Hmm, lascivious. I don't think I'm ever going to use that word. In Sangir, Russia... Archaeologists discovered in 1955 a 30,000-year-old burial site belonging to a mammoth hunting culture. In one grave, they found a skeleton of a 50-year-old man covered with strings of mammoth ivory beads containing about 3,000 beads in total. On the dead man's head was a hat decorated with fox teeth, and on his wrists 25 ivory bracelets. Other graves from the same site contained far fewer goods. Scholars deduce that the Sungir mammoth hunters lived in a hierarchical society, and that the dead man was perhaps the leader of a band or of an entire tribe comprising several bands. It is unlikely that a few dozen members of a single band could have produced so many grave goods by themselves. Archaeologists then discovered an even more interesting tomb. It contained two skeletons, buried head to head. One belonged to a boy, aged about 12 or 13, and the other to a girl, of about 9 or 10. The boy was covered with 5,000 ivory beads. He wore a fox-tooth hat and a belt with 250 fox teeth. At least 60 foxes had to have their teeth pulled to get that many. The girl was adorned with 5,250 ivory beads. Both children were surrounded by statuettes and various ivory objects. A skilled craftsman or craftswoman probably needed about 45 minutes to prepare a single ivory bead. In other words, fashioning the 10,000 ivory beads that covered the two children, not to mention the other objects, required some 7,500 hours of delicate work, well over three years of labor by an experienced artisan. It is highly unlikely that at such a young age the Sungir children had proved themselves as leaders or mammoth hunters. Only cultural beliefs can explain why they received such an extravagant burial. One theory is that they owed their rank to their parents. Perhaps they were the children of the leader in a culture that believed in either family charisma or strict rules of secession. According to a second theory, the children had been identified at birth as the incarnations of some long dead spirits. A third theory argues that the children's burial reflects the way they died rather than their status in life. They were ritually sacrificed, perhaps as part of the burial rites of the leader, and then... Entombed with pomp and circumstance. Whatever the correct answer, the Sungir children are among the best pieces of evidence that 30,000 years ago, sapiens could invent socio political codes that went far beyond the dictates of our DNA and the behavior patterns of other human and animal species. Well beyond. So the next subsection, second to last, is called Peace or War. Finally, there's the thorny question of the role of war in forager societies. Some scholars imagine ancient hunter-gatherer societies as peaceful paradises and argue that war and violence began only with with the agricultural revolution, when people started to accumulate private property. Other scholars maintain that the world of the ancient foragers was exceptionally cruel and violent. Both schools of thought are castles in the air, connected to the ground by the thin strings of meager archaeological remains and uh, anthropological observations of present-day foragers. The anthropological evidence is intriguing but very problematic. Foragers today live mainly in isolated and inhospitable areas, such as the Arctic or the Kalahari, where population density is very low and opportunities to fight other people are limited. Moreover, in recent generations, foragers have been increasingly subject to the authority of modern states, which prevent the eruption of large-scale conflicts. European scholars have only have had only two opportunities to observe large and relatively dense populations of independent foragers in northwestern North America in the 19th century and in northern Australia during the 19th century and early 20th centuries. But, and I'm sorry if I get this wrong, both Amerindian and aboriginal Australian cultures witnessed frequent armed conflicts. It is debatable, however, whether this represents a timeless condition or the impact of European imperialism. The archaeological findings are both scarce and opaque. What telltale clues might remain of any war that took place tens of thousands of years ago? There were no fortifications and walls back then. No artillery shells or even swords and shields. An ancient spear point might have been used in war, but it could have been used in a hunt as well. Fossilized human bones are no less hard to interpret. A fracture might indicate a war wound or an accident. Nor is the absence of fractures and cuts on an ancient skeleton conclusive proof that the person to whom the skeleton belonged did not die a violent death. Death can be caused by trauma to soft tissues that leaves no marks on bone. Even more importantly, during pre-industrial warfare, more than 90% of war dead uh, 90% of war dead were killed by starvation, cold and disease rather than by weapons. Imagine that 30,000 years ago, one tribe defeated its neighbor and expelled it from coveted foraging grounds. In the decisive battle, 10 members of the defe- defeated tribe were killed. In the following year, Another hundred members of the losing tribe died from starvation, cold, and disease. Archaeologists who come across these 110 skeletons may too easily conclude that most fell victim to some natural disaster. How would we be able to tell that they were all victims of a merciless war? Duly warned, we can now turn to the archaeological findings in Portugal. A survey was made of 400 skeletons from the period immediately predating the agricultural revolution. Only two skeletons showed clear marks of violence. A similar survey of 400 skeletons from the same period in Israel discovered a single crack in a single skull that could be attributed to human violence. A third survey of 4,000 skeletons from various pre-agricultural sites in the Danube Valley found evidence of violence on 18 skeletons. 18 out of 400 may not sound like a lot, but it's actually a very high percentage. If all 18 indeed died violently, it means that about 4.5% of deaths in the ancient Danube Valley were caused by human violence. Today, the global average is only 1.5%, taking war and crime together. During the 20th 20th century, only 5% of human deaths resulted from human violence. And this, in a century, and this in a century that saw the bloodiest wars and most massive genocides in history. If this revelation is typical, the ancient Danube Valley was as violent as the 20th century. The depressing findings from the Danube Valley are supported by a string of equally depressing findings from other areas. I'm sorry if I pronounce this wrong. At Jabal Saba? Jabal Sahaba? Jabal Sahaba in Sudan, Jabal Sahaba, Jabal Sahaba. It's kind of it's fun. It's fun to say. At Jabal Sahaba in Sudan, a twelve thousand year old cemetery containing fifty nine skeletons was discovered. Arrowheads and spear points were found embedded in or lying near the bones of twenty four skeletons. Forty percent of the find. The skeleton of one woman revealed twelve injuries. In Offnet Cave in Bavaria, archaeologists discovered the remains of thirty-eight foragers, mainly women and children, who had been thrown into two burial pits. Half the skeletons including had been uh, half the skeletons, including those of children and babies, bore clear signs of damage by human weapons such as clubs and knives. The few skeletons belonging to mature males bore the worst of worst marks of evidence or marks of violence. In all probability, an entire forager band was massacred at Offnet. Which better represents the world of the ancient foragers, the peaceful skeletons from Israel and Portugal, or the abattoirs of Jabal Sahaba and Offnet? The answer is neither. Just as foragers exhibited a wide array of religions and social structures, so too did they probably demonstrate a variety of violence. While some areas in some periods of time may have enjoyed peace and tranquility, others were riven by ferocious conflicts. And the final subsection, the curtain of silence. So the lack of evidence really is what keeps us from understanding what our instinctual behavior of back then was. But we can try and make theories and assumptions and piece together the little evidence we do have. The final chat, final subsection, the curtain of silence. Let's close it. If the larger picture of ancient forager life is hard to reconstruct, particular events are largely irretrievable. When a sapiens band first entered a valley inhabited by Neanderthals, the following years might have been might have witnessed a breathtaking historical drama. Unfortunately, nothing would have survived from such an. In- counter except, at best, a few fossilized bones and a handful of stone tools that remain mute under the most intense scholarly uh, scholarly man, I cannot say a word that ends with lee scholarly intense scholarly scholar I have peanut butter in my mouth the most scholarly that's how you can tell I'm not a scholar scholarly scholarly there it is The most scholarly inquisitions. (laughs) Unfortunately, nothing would have survived from such an encounter except at best a few fossilized bones and a handful of stone tools that remain mute under the most intense scholarly inquisitions. We may extract from them information about human anatomy, human technology, human diet, and perhaps even human social structure, but they reveal nothing about the political alliance forged between neighboring sapien bands. About the spirits of the dead that blessed this alliance or about the ivory beads secretly given to the local witch doctor in order to secure the blessings of the spirits this curtain of silence shrouds tens of thousands of years of history these long millennia may well have witnessed wars and revolutions ecstatic religious movements profound philosophical theories incomparable artistic masterpieces The foragers may have had their all-conquering Napoleons who ruled empires half the size of Luxembourg, gifted Beethovens who lacked symphony orchestras but brought people to tears with the sound of their bamboo flutes, and charismatic prophets who revealed the words of a local oak tree rather than those of a universal creator god. But these are all mere guesses. The curtain of silence is so thick that we cannot even be sure such things occurred, let alone describe them in detail scholars tend to ask only those questions that they can reasonably expect to answer. without the discovery as of yet uh, without the discovery of as yet unavailable research tools, we will probably never know what the ancient foragers believed or what political dramas they experienced. Yet it is vital to ask questions for which no answers are available otherwise we might be tempted to dismiss 60,000 of 70,000 years of human history with the excuse that people who lived back then did nothing of importance. The truth is that they they did a lot of important things. In particular, they shaped the world around us to a much larger degree than most people realize. Trekkers visiting the Siberian tundra, the deserts of central Australia, and the Amazonian rainforest believe that they have entered pristine landscapes, virtually untouched by human hands. But that's an illusion. Foragers were there before us, and they brought about dramatic changes, even in the densest jungles and the most desolate wildernesses. The next chapter explains how the foragers completely reshaped the ecology of our planet long before the first agricultural village was built. The wandering bands of storytelling sapiens were the most important and most destructive force. animal kingdom had ever produced join me for the next theory thursday when we go over chapter four the flood but that was chapter three a compare and contrast to some of the psychology of our ancestors and us today i hope you found it informative and i hope it you use it to your benefit this has been Tox News on a Theory Thursday and I wish you all a wonderful sapien life.